0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast, the post-veto session edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And...
1: Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon.
0: And our special guest today to enlighten us about last week's event is... Tom Dempsey, president of the Missouri Senate. Very good to have you. First off, before we dive into veto session, why don't you tell us a little
2: bit about your St. Charles district and, and who you are? Okay, uh, I represent the twenty third district in St. Charles County. Um, I guess to tell me tell you a little bit about myself. I was uh, born and raised in St. Charles, and uh, my wife and I met at uh, Rockhurst University up in Kansas City. Okay. and uh, we're married and then about a year after we um, were married moved to St. Charles and um, <clears throat> to work for the family business which is the restaurant business. Um,
1: is it a particular restaurant or is it it's, several uh, restaurants? It's
2: Pio's restaurant. I'm oh. Italian on my mother's side. Whoa. My grandfather's uh, first name was Pio so that's where the name came from and uh, my uh, father married my mother in the 60s and Started with the restaurant in the late 60s, uh, became a partner in 1970, and uh, and that's how Dempsey gets into the Italian food business. <laughs> but, and uh, and
3: I, I got, I had the pleasure of interviewing you at your restaurant in December. It's a very nice establishment. Thank you. Just so I can suck up to you before <laughs> no. we get into the hard questions. <laughs> well, I don't, listen,
2: you know, you know, don't count your calories when you go there. It's, but it's, uh, I mean, when you've been in business as long as we have... Uh, You must be doing something right and uh, we've been very fortunate the community's been very good to us and um i think that's the biggest connection i have is the and that the family has to the community is through the restaurant and um anyway uh moved back home uh actually we have a banquet center um, a partnership in that and i ran that for a number of years prior to getting on the city council and meanwhile uh we had uh through a period of years three children And I have two in college now, a junior and a freshman at Mizzou. The junior is studying abroad and uh, an eighth grader. And uh, so I guess that's just uh, a thumbnail about myself.
1: Now, you mentioned you work for a bank, too.
2: Yeah, I work for First National Bank of St. Louis. I'm coming up on uh, six years. What do you do there? Uh, Business development, uh, primarily commercial lending. But uh, it's a very good bank and uh, Missouri chartered.
3: And make their decisions here
2: locally, and I'm uh, trying to help grow their market in the region.
3: I believe your colleague from St. Charles, Scott Roop, also works at a bank, so mm-hmm. there's some commonality between the two uh, esteemed senators from St. Charles in that, in that regard. <laughs> and uh, Chuck Gross had prior to that, also yes, uh, following in that tradition <laughs> as well. <laughs> well. But but you know, how did you decide to get involved in politics? Right. What what prompted you to run for the city council and the state representative, and also the state senate?
2: Well, my interest in government started <clears throat> really in high school and uh, was going to DeSmet and had um, government teacher Bob Christian, who I heard was a big Democrat, so maybe he's disappointed <laughs> in, in what he you know helped uh, create. But uh, anyway, I enjoyed the, those classes, American government, social studies, learning about the founding of our country. At that time, um, Ronald Reagan was running for president and um, You know, I I like being a part of things that are very special, and I think, um, you know, my community, my family, the country that I live in are all special, and Ronald Reagan really kind of hit home, and I identified with the things that that he talked about, because he talked about uh, how great we were as a country. And so, you know, that that happened in high school, and then I was running the uh, banquet center, and had a local community leader uh, come up to me and say, hey, have you ever given any thought to running... For city council, uh, think you do a good job. We're looking for candidates, and I thought, well, here's this here's this opportunity, this thing, this interest that I had years ago in high school. Uh, you know, I can see what public service is all about. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know, two and a half years later, Chuck Gross ran for the state senate. The state rep job uh, would have been an open seat. You know, this enjoyed city politics, uh, streets, creeks, sewers, those types of issues, neighborhood issues. But the ones at the state level, those are more the ones that we're talking about at the dining room table. Education, health care, crime, uh, tax policy, and and uh, had a supportive uh, ownership, supportive family, and, and so uh,
3: ran, and, you know, here I am today. Now, you are the, the, the top Republican senator in the the Missouri Senate. I think not senator, top senator. The top senator. I, I, you don't wait, even have to have was, that uh, Step back. <laughs>
2: but I was just
1: going to ask I, you. I refer
2: to myself as really first among equals. Yeah.
3: But that's what I. That was going to be my question. <laughs> I just wanted to kind of ask you to touch on your role as president pro tem and to also just maybe expound on the fact that even though you are president of the pro tem, the Senate works differently from the House, where individual members have more power and more say mm-hmm. than say the house because you've you've been in both chambers can you just kind of talk a little bit about what your role is and you know how 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 it kind of runs this or not necessarily runs the senate but how it kind of goes in with the operations of the senate sure Um, i guess formally you know i i have the ability to
2: preside uh rule on points of order Mm -hmm. um you know preside when the lieutenant governor is not there and you get into the other nuts and bolts uh, naming of committee chairman uh committee membership you know those are some of the uh, aspects aspects of the job uh bill referral now in the senate the house has a lot more flexibility though all bills have to be uh, sent to committee by the end of the year the senate um the bills have to be taken in order and sent to committee. So if I need to get, want to get to bill 500, I've got to refer the other 499. So bill referral is a part of that. And then after bills are voted out of committee, uh, then I would have some discretion over taking those bills in and then putting them on the calendar. And after they get to the calendar, then and that becomes the majority leader's job. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of the formal parts of the job, but uh, really just I've focused on trying to create an environment where we can solve the problems that face the state and getting people to uh, to work together because it is more collaborative on the Senate side mm-hmm. if you're going to move forward. And you know, we wanted to uh, move. Uh, we had a very ambitious schedule in 2013 with what we wanted to accomplish in improving Missouri's business climate. And um, instead of having within my own caucus 24 people, each one, saying, over my dead body will we do x you know let's you know be passionate about your issues uh, fight for what you believe in um, compromise where you can at the end of the day there have been a number of things we've just been able unable to deal with because we can't get them to a vote and and, in those areas where you can't agree there is broad consensus but what I'm asking instead of filibustering it, if, if we could get some of these issues to a vote and take care of some of these things we haven't been able to take care of. And and to a great extent, we were able to deal with some subjects that we hadn't been able to. And in and, and some other areas, you know, I was a little frustrated that we there were a couple of things we couldn't get done.
1: Which brings us to the veto session. <laughs> <laughs> and for the uh, listeners, I mean, veto session is where the legislature gets back in a session and they just try to override all of any or all the vetoes that the governor did this case there was 29 vetoes up and in the senate you need 23 votes and um there were a number of vetoes overridden a record number in modern times but a couple of the big ones did not uh do, do you want to talk just a little bit about what you did the veto session proceed as you thought it would was there any particular surprises for you on the Senate side, because I know in a lot of ways the Senate was waiting, just waiting to see what the house was was doing
2: um I would say generally it it worked out as i as I thought it would. There were a couple of surprises you know i thought that the tax cut that we passed the first tax cut in a hundred years, but um you know I knew when we had uh, in theory, veto-proof majorities after Election Day with some of our supporters that would be this kind of Katie-bar-the-door mentality that we have all this backlog of things that we can't get through a Democrat governor. Now we don't have to worry about a Democrat governor. Well, we still don't have unanimity of thought, you know, just as you disagree with probably some of your own family members. Um, But uh, I think uh, talking about a tax cut is is, uh, talking about shortcomings with it the loss is going to lead to, you know, a better bill next year. Mm -hmm. And so that was one thing uh, we weren't able to accomplish, but I thought the chances were slim that we were going to get that done.
1: Was it because of the um, sales tax uh, stuff that was in there? Well, you know, we actually,
2: and I think it was demonstrated, someone found that the communication between the sponsor of the bill and the governor's office, they were consulted on the bill. Um, So, you know, I saw a comment from the governor talking about our work being sloppy. Well, we even had cases mm-hmm. where we worked with the executive branch and we didn't get the language right. But yeah, some of that I thought the prescription drug aspect of it. Was we would have filed the bill first day of pre-filing. We would have ran it early. We could have had it on the governor's desk with an emergency clause uh, by Valentine's Day, and uh, that that wouldn't have that provision would not have. Uh, taken place until 2015 anyway. So I thought that was a red herring. Some of his other criticism of the bill, the um, part related to the Main Street Fairness Act and um, exaggerating the size of the hole in the budget, not talking about the triggering mechanisms that we had in the bill. um, But other people did listen. So uh, we're going to go back and we're going to take care of some of those issues and and uh, that's probably what Senator Kraus and Senator Schmidt and others are working on right now is what does next year's bill look like. So, you know, that was kind of the biggest bill out there, the one that had grabbed the most attention. The, uh, the bill related to the Second Amendment was another one that people were uh, – and I know we'll get to that. It's right. uh, <laughs> uh, getting, getting that a lot here. of attention. <laughs> but, you know, we, I think um, there were ten bills overridden. Uh, Which one do you think was the most
0: consequential? Because sort of the two big marquee ones weren't overridden, right. but there were some that will have consequences, will be consequential. Which one do you look
2: at and say this is the most important override that we were able to do? Well, I think that first I want to point out the ten overrides, I think, to some degree sure. is a consequence of sure. the governor's office or staff not communicating during the legislative process.
1: Do, do you think there needs to be more communication or –
2: it would help okay it would help um to not find out what they're thinking until after july 14th then you know, i'm not the only one who's had that complaint uh the two biggest bills are the two that i think of are the uh, bill related to um, i guess it's a smaller tort reform issue and uh Do run is the right. company sure. from, uh, most often connected to that 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 was a big accomplishment for the legislature, and as was the um, the no pay no play bill I mentioned to Jason prior to getting on the air. The insurance industry had been pursuing that for over twenty years. You know, here we have this requirement that everyone should have insurance if they you know have a vehicle or driving on our roads, and pe- yet people continue to not do that. So
1: this, so that bill, well, now that it's law, means that if you're uninsured and you're in an accident. You can't get punitive damages you, you, from the right. Other. You can't
2: get non-economic damages right? right. And there's there's a couple of exceptions that were made. Um, if someone, uh, the person that you were in an accident with, was on drugs or uh, intoxicated, then then you wouldn't you would be able to receive non-economic damages.
3: Were you surprised with with, with the Doe Run bill? The one thing that I thought was really interesting was it wasn't your normal coalition that would override a bill. It wasn't necessarily conservative Democrats or. Democrats that constantly vote with Republicans. It was somewhat progressive Democrats, labor friendly Democrats. And labor was really good on this. Well. Why do you think that that coalition came together to override that bill? Well, because we're talking
2: about good paying jobs in an area where there just aren't other that many other options, and and uh, there will be damages that will be paid out, and that's where you get to as we talk about tort reform, and it's. Going to be an issue probably for next year is the balance that needs to be there. That yes, we when people are wrong, there needs to be, you know, uh, there needs to be a response for that. You know, those people need to be taken care of and 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 uh, and not forgotten. And uh, but we can't have a legal climate that is so punitive that it drives people. Um, out of the state of Missouri. Where, and But in this case, because it's a, related to a lead mine, they won't be leaving Missouri. They'll just be closing operations. And I think they're the last working lead mine in the country. And at a time where, you know, people are going, we're, we're having discussions about can we run automobiles on electric and, you know, we still use lead to make those batteries. And so they, they provide a good-paying jobs, and uh, they're in a, uh, an industry sector where um, there's demand.
1: So uh, now we'll get to the, the <laughs> elephant in the, the room. room. <laughs> okay. Uh, HB 4, 436, which was the uh, called the Second Amendment Bill or the gun nullification major. Had Second Amendment Preservation yeah. Act, uh, yes. I believe. and but, which basically would have uh, restricted enforcement of federal gun laws in Missouri and other things. Um, I was inter- obviously, in many ways, you ended up being the key player in that. In what happened with right. that bill. Uh, do you want to talk about that a bit? I mean, sort of what your decision-making was and sure. um, kind of the at- atmosphere about it. I, I was over in the House when it passed the House by the exact number, and actually it seemed like some of the House members – the feeling on the floor—you had a sense that some were actually shocked that it passed. I mean, it's just one—it yeah. it, it, it was an odd situation. Uh, so anyway, I was interested in your take about what happened in the Senate, why you decided to do to take the position you did, and what happens.
2: Well, I had been giving um, the bill a lot of thought. I talked to you just prior to session, was trying to come to a conclusion on what I might do um, when the bill uh, came to the floor. Um, you know, I, my record on, you know, gun ownership and the Second Amendment goes back, you know, I have a number of votes over 13 years yeah. going back to the override of the, my support for concealed carry and, and the override. And um, so I've, I've supported gun ownership, allowing law-abiding citizens to carry concealed firearms, supporting hunting and fishing rights um, and, and things along the line. This bill, uh you know, I guess one of the criticisms I had from a few people was, why did you vote for it during session and and then against although it. although
3: I, I noticed that Gina Walsh and Paul Voda voted for it too, strangely, and I don't know why they did that either, but that's an aside. Uh, yeah. You weren't the only person that changed your vote on that, so continue. well it's
2: it's uh it's something that I'm you know I think a lot about and and uh, you know I think at the time I made the decision I did during session. With the information that was available right. to me at the time, so was a particular know, outside of, of some information. Well, that outside you you found of some out criticism from mind? the press association, there really, you know, the governor hadn't weighed in. the uh, The attorney general hadn't said anything. Uh, you know, law enforcement hadn't really chimed in on, on the bill, and um, and uh, you know, it was kind of a it was. I heard somebody refer to it as a knee jerk reaction to a mm-hmm. knee jerk reaction, but but you do have uh, Posturing or discussions at the federal level to further restrict gun gun ownership, and uh, um, against what many people believe, myself included, is very clear language in the Second Amendment that says that the the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Um, so, as we got to to veto session, you had those groups that had not participated during the legislative process had not come to committee hearings had had weighed in on the bill. You know, the NRA was neutral on the mm-hmm. bill. Uh, Did
1: they call you? Did anybody call you from the NRA and say, look, we're not taking a stance no. on this No, okay. no.
2: I just, I, I knew that they had not taken a position on the bill. Mm-hmm. You know, the attorney general, our top prosecutor for the state of Missouri, had given his opinion on the bill. The uh, attorney general, the former attorney general, now the governor, mm-hmm. had given his opinion on the bill. And... And law enforcement groups had weighed in uh, the press association or members of different uh, newspapers across the state uh, talked about their objections and, and and looked again at the language and thought that you know I gave the benefit of the doubt during session on the legislation, but to go to the threshold of overriding the governor, I needed to the certain the level Correct. of certainty needed to be there and Frankly, at the end of the day, I was concerned about the unintended consequences of the bill, and um, my belief that there may be circumstances occur upon a successful override that would uh, embarrass uh, the legislature or embarrass embarrass the the majority party that is governing the that legislature. And and uh, you know the response I would hear would be, well, we can, you know, many people who were a part of the bill or had been involved and right. agreed that there were problems with the bill. And I just wanted to f- fix those next year. Um, I had others tell me that, don't worry about it, the press association is going to file suit next year. And so I really don't like that response either. That That's really an admission that we could have done a better job of drafting the language and that if I'm going to count on a lawsuit to stop it, then... Then that's not the right answer either, and uh, we just need to do a better job of of drafting the bill, and um, and we can do that. We can take care of it early next year, and you know we can still have this fight with the federal government government over what the Tenth Amendment means, and and uh, and but we can just do it the the right way, and uh, and so that's and and I the other thing I thought about like kind of in the hour prior to the vote was I was going to come before the press as I do right. um, on a weekly basis, during, and I was going to have to explain what had, ha- what had happened, why we, either why we had overridden the bill or why the bill had failed. And I felt much comfortable with the latter position. I couldn't, with all sincerity, with the problems that were in the bill and the potential harm I thought it could do, uh, be sincere in my defense of the override, and so I, I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna vote no, and uh, we, we're just we'll start working on next year's bill after veto, right after veto session.
1: Now I, I talked to Nieves, uh, State Senator, who was the big defender of the bill in the Senate. I talked to him a couple of days ago, and he basically uh, was saying that he was taking some of the concerns to heart, and that he recognized that. He said he was going to be pushing for a revised version, but that he wasn't going to be pushing for the same version, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, So do you think that that can be... Are there any provisions of that bill that you think are going to have to be fought again? Are there some provisions that are automatically going to be tossed out, like the thing about identifying gun owners or... The thing about the provision that that law enforcement <clears throat> said would prevent them from being involved in federal task forces—that well, sort of thing. Well,
2: that's what we need to spend some time on. Right? You know, it, there are additional things coming to light. Like, if you okay have a complete rejection of the federal laws on gun ownership and gun regulation, well, the um, the feds ban illegal aliens from possessing firearms. Right. We don't have a state law that does right, that. Right. You know, so. We just need a, a really a complete review, and kind of what you're getting to is do we need a complete rework of the bill, or can we address certain things by amendment or better language and um I'm not there yet as to say what exactly what that bill looks like
1: now, what was the fallout of your vote? Did you get threats? Did you have people call you upset about it, or did people get what was what the issue was?
2: uh we had a lot of emails to the office, other through social media uh you know twitter or facebook uh, got comments from some supportive i've got supportive comments from some legislators as well uh both in the house and senate and uh and also certainly a a number of people who were upset with my vote and um and so yes i did i did get quite a bit of feedback and we I, i put my statement together on the reasons for my position the concerns that i had with the legislation i put it up on facebook i i sent it out to everyone who sent me an email we we sent a response and i think once once people have had an opportunity to to read to get more background to understand some of the shortcomings of the bill and the, some of the drafting errors and and the potential harm that they would do you, kind of the, the subsequent response i would get was a lot more understanding uh, about why I voted the way I voted
3: now in in I guess the week of or the week before the veto session house majority leader Ron Richards came out publicly Ron Richard not Ron Richards I get that mistaken all the time (laughs) he came out against the bill and I thought that was a significant development because he holds a lot of gravitas he has a lot of allies in the legislature when someone like that comes out against the bill it usually means other people are going to come out against it too I wasn't expecting you to be the other person. I was expecting to be someone like Jay Wasson, who he's very close with, or others. Were there other people that wanted to vote no on this bill but just felt they couldn't for some reason, that's why you had to do it, or were you going to vote no regardless of what happened? Well, I came to my conclusion
2: just resolving the issue with myself, you know, Mm -hmm. what I felt my head and my heart. Um, I know that I wasn't the only legislator in either chamber that was concerned about the the impact of the bill and some of the negative consequences. Um but I, I can't tell you what was what was in their mind. We didn't ask everybody what their vote was gonna be when we caucused on it, but we you know, we did just kinda talk over about about the bill and and um so I guess I'm really I can't tell you why or well, what was in the minds of, of other senators and House members?
1: So did some know that you were going to vote again? The reason I'm asking is this. The roll call of the Senate on that bill I thought was interesting because there was a couple senators, one of them was Senator Schmidt, who when people vote they go by district. And when it got to their districts well, it's, they – it's alphabetical. Well, it's alphabetical. alphabetical or whatever, but but they – Because
2: I always wish I could be like a – Wolford or uh, or a Walling, or, a Wallingford, yeah, or a yeah, Walsh. a Wallingford or. Right. Wall- <laughs> my, my
1: point being that the first time they either passed or present or did something like that, so then the um, uh, woman taking the vote then went back to them. Yeah, if at least they were absent. Yes, yeah, you and, could, and may yeah. You
2: can pause, and then they'll skip over you, and they'll come so back.
1: So my question was: Were these other senators? Because there was traffic about on Twitter about that. There was assertions by some conservatives that the two senators who were either not in the room or whatever and that had voted at the very end, uh, that they had been poised to vote against it if need be or whatever. I'm not ass- asserting that. I'm just saying Twitter went crazy within minutes from certain conservatives who were saying that. So I was just... What's your take on what happened? I I
2: didn't – there wasn't any discussion in our caucus meeting about I'm going to do this, so you do that. Okay. You know, it was – members knew when we left our meeting that I was voting no. Okay. Okay. That's – I will tell you, that's what they did know. Okay. Okay? And I I think they also knew that that, uh, Senator Richard was going to be voting no. Beyond that, there was no other – no other discussion
1: right. and for the listeners to understand that about
2: about who was voting right. how
1: you needed two Republicans to vote no and all the Democrats to vote no for the override not to happen right right so exactly. that's just, yeah we needed 23 right correct
0: we've talked a little bit about what we can expect next next session a retooling of 253 the income tax cut bill and a reworking of of this law what other bills can we expect coming up next
2: session Okay, well, we, you know, last, prior to January, we had spent a, a, a lot of time in policy development, versus with members who were returning, and then kind of later in the year with uh, who we thought was likely to going to be serving, likely going to be serving in the chamber, and that's where we came up with the focus on business climate and, and look on infrastructure, education, and economic development, and, the, and then the different specific bills that came under that. Uh, this year, we you know, We have members who have a year of experience now or three years of experience, We've, and um, with the amount of overrides, the considerations that needed to be taken into account. We haven't done a lot on policy development, and my communications with the press and other circumstances have been and will continue to be that – the Senate Republicans are going to caucus and uh, have a retreat in November where we're going to mm-hmm. sit down and develop our priorities for next year. And you know what I what I can give you is, kind of based on my read thus far or what I think some of the things are uh, outside of the tax cut bill and and mm-hmm. um, the the Second Amendment bill. And so some of the things that um, that you've been reporting on, I think are likely to come up uh, next year. Uh, related to education policy, you know this this process of dealing with school transfers. You know, nineteen ninety three, out the Democrats passed the Outstanding Schools Act f- for what nine years that they were in control. They never developed sure. a process. Desi never developed a process. The ten years that or so that we've been in control, we didn't develop a process. Though we discussed it in like, two thousand and twelve, and you know with the the supreme court's decision that was handed down in June and what has ensued since then i think we're going to spend a lot of time dealing with that issue and now, trying to develop and as a part of that we you know we we're, we're going to have to look at so the outstanding schools act basically said we're going to increase your education funding but there're going to be expectations that go along with that okay well So what do we do when we have a school district that's not performing? You know, we over 10 years, we in between 93 and 2002, we increased education funding 120%. We've increased it since then, not at that rate. But back to the question of what do you do when you have a failing school district? And and, uh, so we're going to spend our time solving that problem and making sure that, number one, that children have access to a quality education. I think second would be. We believe that education, if at all possible, should take place in the community where they live. And then – and how do we do that? Um, you know, School funding it continues to be out there as an issue. If you look at the last two school funding formulas, it was – they were developed after a lawsuit. And so we don't seem to get much done in education policy unless there's a lawsuit <laughs> that has to be – you know, and that's whether it's under Republican or Democrat control. But um, so that issue, higher education, we had a bill that passed uh, late mm-hmm. in the Senate on performance funding. Uh, Senator Pierce has done a lot of work on that, and, and that's likely to come up next year. Health care reform.
1: Yeah, in fact, I was going to ask you the Medicaid.
2: Yeah, I've got uh, a committee that uh, Senator Romine is chairing uh, looking at, what we can do um, to bend the cost curve in healthcare? To, um, it's it's an issue that I spent some time on my first two years. We've got you know all members that are that are I would say three years or less in their legislative terms. So there's going to be some continuity going into next year and next term. And so we'll have their report in December. I know that uh, between you know now and then you'll also have the exchanges are supposed to move forward on October 1st. Uh, other aspects of the Affordable Health Care Act, I think, are to take effect after January 1. So all those things are going to kind of play into what health care policy is going to look like you know, next year. And so the expansion of Medicaid, that discussion will probably occur. Well,
3: I wanted to ask you this as well. because I, I asked Senator Roop this. Do you think that that issue of Medicaid expansion, whether it's straight expansion or a quote-unquote reform plan, is going to get intertwined in the certificate of need issue that Senator Schaff has brought up for years and years and years? I mean, you had personal experience when you you put forward, an, uh, I guess, a smaller Medicaid expansion and it got intertwined with that. Do you think that's going to happen again this time?
2: Um, well, I know that Certificate of need is, um, for Senator Schaff a key component of health care reform. Mm-hmm. That if you really want to talk about health care reform and bringing competition and price down, that elimination of certificate of need. And, and, this, and that involves at, like the licensing
3: yeah, It's basically a so. requirement
2: that you've got to get state approval before you can make a sizable health uh, investment in the health care facility or health care equipment. Yes. So they, the, the state, through this committee, determines – if you're able to open a hospital if Your you're able to buy a yeah. piece of equipment that's that's um, I think over a million dollars yeah sure um, and so I'm we may have a debate on that issue and, and so it, it may be part of it I I did told the chairman of the committee and committee members listen, I don't have a preordained mm-hmm. uh, direction I'm asking you to, to go and listen and you're all very capable, very intelligent people to sit down and, and try to put something forward, which uh, that gives us a little bit of direction going into January when we actually draft a bill and try to move something.
1: Yeah, because one of the things that came up, I covered a um, town hall a couple days ago on um, the Obamacare. But the one of the points that was emphasized um, is that, okay, with the exchanges uh, – People who buy um, insurance through the exchanges, if they make up to a certain level, if for family four, it's about ninety-four thousand dollars. They can get a t- they will be getting a tax break uh, or a subsidy to help cover, help make it more affordable. But there's a minimum income for that too, because of the assumption under the federal law that these that the people who make below that will be able to get on Medicaid. Well, because in Missouri, that's not the case. You've got several hundred thousand people who won't be on Medicaid, but also won't be able to qualify for any subsidies. Uh, I mean, do you see the state addressing that at all? Whether whether you expand Medicaid or not, or if you do something else, well, I'm just interested if that if that aspect is even on the well. Radar I, that's screen. where
2: there are so many different beliefs on what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know. I, the reason why I got involved in health care was because there are problems with access to care, quality of care, and cost of care, okay, and what I would have preferred was state flexibility, much mm-hmm. like they did in welfare reform in 94, give block granted out, let us develop our own solutions, we can learn one from one another, somebody can do a completely socialistic, single-payer system, somebody can do a f- completely free market, and mm-hmm. we can do 48 things in between, but that's not what we have. Um, and so, but we we as uh, Republican majorities uh, in the in the state Senate still believe that that this is going to be a train wreck, mm-hmm. you know. And and that's what time will det- will okay. will dictate who's right. Is it a train wreck? Is it, it is it all the promise that that uh, the president has um, has um, you know is it is he envisioned or is it something in between? Yeah. You know, and uh, and so that's that's going to dictate what's happening at the national level. You know, do companies continue to move people to more part-time employment for cost avoidance? Do they dump people that were uh, that they provided insurance for? Now, do they do they dump them into the exchange? Do young healthy people buy insurance, or do they just pay the penalty? Um, you know, all those questions have yet to be answered. You know, does the federal government they're going to pull away dish payments over a seven year period um, does that affect their viability as a going concern in some of the either city in St. Louis City and places like Christian North or down in Pemiscot and so you know I'm paying attention to it and and I know others as well and that's kind of really, really I think what's going to the, as that plays out It's it's going to Affects our policy.
1: Do you hear much in your district about that? And I also wanted to ask, also, do you hear much in the district about the whole transfer situation since your district is affected by that, the whole Normandy?
2: Yeah, I've got the Francis Kansas Howell House School District. It's not as much, you know, and I think certainly the, the students that are at the Francis Howell School District are there to learn and get a better education. I think that's why their parents sent them there. They had that choice. And – um so, but we do have the DESE asking for what six point eight million dollars for the Normandy School yeah. District. I think, you know, ideally, that's what we want the kids to get a quality education in their neighborhoods or in their community, and so um, we need we need a solution that that takes that in, that takes that into account.
3: Um, one. So before we get That's before right. we get into the last questions, is there any other things about the session Correct. next that you want you want okay. to mention? So
2: the performance funding, healthcare, a state infrastructure just had toured the state hospital in Fulton, and the place is slowly turning into rubble. And it's the only state uh, hospital that we have. Um, we need to address we need to address it, and that may be a part of some discussion, whether through general revenue or a a bonding legislation. How we address that. And then there are other needs in state infrastructure, uh, some related to tourism or in our state parks, uh, some in the area of academic uh, academic achievement and economic development. And uh, so that's other legislation that I'd I'd like to see to get debated on the Senate floor.
1: Is there going to be another attempt, I mean, at a capital improvements type thing, which was, I mean, which was everyone thought was agreed on? Back in May.
2: Uh, I was it was never a priority for us last okay. year. Okay. You know, and when you were talking about potentially going to the ballot in two thousand and fourteen with the bond issue, well it never needed to be right. taken care of necessarily last year. So this was we passed a bill out of committee early and that's where it sat. And and so this year was really the time for discussion. I also put another committee together to look at some of those needs across the state because I just didn't want a situation where Okay, there's a there's a bonding bill. It's going to have um priorities across the state. I got to make sure I get something for my district. You know, it needs to be needs-based and not just be on the list because there's a list. It's the we we owe it to the taxpayers to make sure that where we can leverage private dollars, we do that that the there's truly a need and a benefit to the state of Missouri and and uh, in each project that is that would be a part of uh, this infrastructure um, proposal
0: Joe I believe you had one more question yes. about okay, well, future plans yes
1: well, what are your future plans you your term mm-hmm. limited so you're out in um, 2016
3: 2016 correct oh uh, that's right
1: what are your thoughts about what you may or may not do after that
2: well I I enjoy public service I um, very fortunate to represent the 23rd district and, um, and, and my community, I have not made any decisions. I, I thought first, I need to do a good job. Mm-hmm. I need to, as a, as a senator for my district, as the president of the Senate. And I thought for two years, that's all I'm going to focus on. And, and the policies that I think we need to, to face and, uh, to the problems that we need to solve as a state, and if that makes me less electable then that's not shouldn't be a consideration and so i've got another year and you know i just i'm gonna keep my head down and and keep doing my job and and uh, leave that decision for
3: another day are you are you thinking of not doing another term as pro tem after 2015 i you know i
2: I serve at the pleasure, I guess, of the Senate and Senate Republicans. So I I just—I've never taken anything for granted. I don't, you know, in any election that I ever had, I call it a nervous paranoia. You know, you wake up every morning and think, "What do I need to do today?" And you, you just, you you just, just focus on your job and. And do the best you can.
1: Yeah, because I've heard a lot from Republicans and Democrats, current and past senators, who have a high regard for you. Mm-hmm. So, at least— uh, Well, Albany don't, don't, don't <laughs> do anything to screw that up over the next three years.
2: <laughs> it, you know, the, the restaurant industry, I say, you're only as good as your last meal. Okay? <laughs> Well, we're going to we're going to
0: end it at that. We're going to go have some lunch here at uh, the Senator's <laughs> restaurant. Yeah,
1: what's what's your what's the name of dish? It it's
2: called Pio's <laughs> restaurant and I guess uh, based on some of the social media I've been reading, I I have to trumpet our uh, our, uh, our Provel-based uh, pizza, <laughs> it's, it's quite astounding, and uh, we are winning over mozzarella lovers every day.
3: You're, you're making good. this person that doesn't eat dairy very sad. <laughs> I
1: do eat dairy, so I'm, in, I'm intrigued.
0: All right. Well, we'll end it on that note. Uh, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at CS McDaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at
1: J Manus. That's J M A N N I E S.
0: And you can follow the Senator on Twitter at, at Senator Dempsey. Thank you very much for coming in. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.